The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! here and we're gonna go find the treasure come on okay i'm on it's my always way. i've got it's always snakes in here snakes are in here i, I don't know whether to not, oh, whether or Hold not on, to put on a an alfred molina accent or a yeah, that one round accent nope. i'm leaning way towards alfred molina paul do do that one i'm gonna use my <laughs> rope and i'm gonna swing across this chasm here this oh, large yeah. that's gaping a big one. chasm that's, and a, just that's a big gaping chasm. Whip it, and I'm flying across. Okay, now you take the rope. Here's the rope. Okay. All right, come on. It's time to fling across okay, the all right, chasm. All right, here I come. Here all right, I come. Come on, I'm snakes. Right. It's hey, always whip. snakes in here. Now, be very careful. We're going to have to walk across this ancient puzzle. Okay. And to get across the oh. ancient puzzle, oh. we can only... I just only... stepped. I just stepped on a tile. It what? went down. What's the well? Okay, so, all right. Well, I guess we found our first letter. Now, what what is what is the letter on that tile there? Uh, B. Okay, the next one we have to go is to another B. So B okay. is over. Uh, B is over in the corner. All right, I stepped on it. James, can you follow it? Can you come? Yes. Oh, I stepped on a T. What a T? A T. Okay. It, oh, it looks like a dart has it looks like a dart has flown into my neck. Thank you, James. Thank You're you, James, welcome. for that. All right. So if you can just follow me across, it looks like there's another chasm uh-huh. here. We're just gonna we're just gonna fling across. Oh, it's Nazis. <laughs> James, the Nazis have me. I'm in, I'm I'm ensnared by Nazis. I, oh, I'm geez. just not gonna be able to get to the lost treasure. Can you grab it for me? And oh, there's a lost treasure over here. I'm just gonna go over. I, oh. Hey, toss me that sandbag. Okay, here's the sandbag. The Nazis let me toss you the sandbag. Oh, I fell into the chasm. T- toss me something else. Here's a Nazi. Here. 
Alright, well this was a bit about lost treasure because we're doing a, this, a similar episode. I'm Paul Kaminsky. Welcome to the Third Men Podcast. I'm your co-host. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky, and I feel like uh, I mentioned that we were getting better at yes anding, and I think we're wrong. I think I was wrong about that. I think we're not good at it. I think it took an upward turn when I tossed you a Nazi. I, for one, am pro-tossing Nazis. Anyway, this is a Jack White history program. And today, Paul, you've got something special for us. Yeah, so what I've got in store today is the third in our series of Lost Album episodes. Now, these tend to be very popular episodes for us, which uh, we can see, because we can see all of you in your cars listening to this right now. Right. It's about when we lose albums like that uh, that Hootie and the Blowfish Cracked Rear View album that I lost years ago, and we get all of you uh, to help me find it, like Serial. We go through episodically and figure out where that Cracked Rear View really is. I It was under my desk. I found it. So these tend to be very, very popular amongst you people. <laughs> And this week, for the third one, it's one I've been slowly compiling since we started doing these. So we did the Lost Rack and Tours album, uh, I want to say between eight and nine months before Help a Stranger came out. So, all right, they sort of beat us after the punch. It's sort of an after punch beating to that one. Then we did the, we were hoping that maybe that meant we could will these things into existence. So anyway, we did the Lost Jay-Z collaboration last year. Yes, we did. And that one was yeah. very cool. I very much enjoyed that one. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we hadn't been able to will that one into existence. Now, this third one is going to be about the Lost White Stripes album. So, I mean, we'll get into the topic, but as we all know, the White Stripes had to cut their 2007 tour short for a variety of reasons, and then the band sort of went on this hiatus before four years later disbanding ultimately. But in doing different research for these different topics we've done these past 117 episodes, I kept finding little like rando comments from Jack around 2008, 2009, 2010, where they're floating the idea of new White Stripes music. And when we talked to Ben Blackwell, one of the times... I think we did actually bring this up with him, and and he did confirm that there were discussions about it. And so, anyway, this episode is going to be sort of everything I was able to find about this theoretical last White Stripes album that was never meant to be. I do want it to be clear. When we asked Ben Blackwell, he said, if there are any recordings of it, I don't know about it, and I don't think there are any. He did say that. There's many reasons why it could potentially not be a contradiction. It could simply be a... Uh, well, we'll get into it. Anyway, so this is everything I could find. And then we're going to theorize about what the tracks could have been and, you know, maybe make ourselves a little, like, mixtape of what could have been the last White Stripes album. And it's going to be super fun. We hope you all enjoy it. So we've got a lot of good stuff ahead of us this episode. But, James, before we get to all of that... Paul... Does somebody have an opinion? They do, and I believe we call that segment, for some reason, pancake batter. I don't think we wanted to say people's opinions don't matter. (laughs) I'll show you how to express your opinion in English. I had opinions that didn't matter. I had a brain that felt like pancake 
yourself a cup of coffee and what fees up for brunch this weekend. Sometimes when we get a lot of feedback on topics that we do on this show, we like to showcase some of those uh, thoughts and feelings and opinions in a segment that we, I, I'm going to say don't like to call Pancake Bat, because I don't think either of us like that title, but we have an intro for it, so there you go. I don't think anyone does, but we've, we're sticking with it, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, James, you had an interesting topic last episode. Yeah, we talked about uh, three degrees of separation from Jack White. We did that Kevin Bacon, the Baconman game, mm-hmm. uh, except we did it with Jack White instead, and uh, we connected assorted musicians and and bands and the like uh, to to Jack in three or less connections, if we could. And uh, I believe, Paul, we posed the question to the people out in the face world, in mm-hmm. the uh, in the, in face in the world, social medias. Yeah. Yeah, to try and find some possible people to connect that they thought may be impossible, or at least hard, or at least a name. Yeah, and this one ignited a lot of discussion in all of the different groups we posted to. Uh, I'd like to start with not a, an opinion from a fan, but just something I found and I posted to our Instagram. If you're not following us on Instagram, we are at the Third Men underscore Podcast on Instagram. I'll change that eventually. Anyway, I found a bunch of pictures of Jack White and Sting, because that was one of them. Oh, fun. And they post together an awful lot. I found about five or six of them, and it looks like half of them are from the Cold Mountain movie premiere, and uh, or at mm. least something associated with the Cold Mountain affair. And it seems Beck. And then there's some with Beck that looks like it's maybe closer to, like, the 2008? 2008? seven or eight region something like that unclear yeah sure i probably should have just like looked at the google things but anyway so there's that one of them was staying and so the other they've been photographed together a bunch and i, I i'd also like to very quickly point out a correction that jeremy riles keeping us on those rails sent us that um you know i'd connected the birds to the christian life and then connected david crosby to jack and jeremy points out that david crosby wasn't a member of the birds when that band recorded the album sweethearts of the rodeo which that song was on he left the group on their previous album the notorious bird brothers which i did think was a was a joke and i guess is not so anyway thank you jeremy for pointing that out to us but anyway we have a few here in uh 2004 by the way is the back really at the grammys yeah Huh. Jack looks older there. I don't know why. So anyway, we got a few suggestions from some fans on the different Facebook groups uh, of people to connect, and some came in and did it for us. So Kayetta Taylor asked us to connect Depeche Mode to Jack White, and we Hmm. did not get around to that one, but Jamie Lambing did, another person in that group who said that they got from Depeche Mode to Jack by them both having recorded U2 songs on the Achtung Baby 2011 tribute album Depeche Mode covered So Cruel and Jack White covered the very memorable Love is Blindness and I, I agree that is a very memorable tune so there's the yeah, yes. there's the Depeche Mode connection uh, Kevin Bork asked us to connect Jack White to Tiny Tim and uh, I jumped in on that one Tiny Tim was uh, friends with the Beatles not only friends with the Beatles but contributed to the Beatles 1968 Christmas message we have a special guest here this evening, Mr. Tiny Tim, I'd like to ask him to say a few words. 
Oh, hello to you nice Beatles. Uh, it's so wonderful. And what a thrill it is talking here. Uh, He's on an official Beatles recording. And, of course, Paul McCartney was honored at the White House where Jack White performed Mother Nature's Son in his honor. So I was able to get from Tiny Tim to Jack with just two connections there. And the thing is, I just want to say Merry Christmas to you all and uh, a Happy New Year. <laughs> we have a bunch here from Luke Sinclair. Uh, Luke actually went in and did did all of them, did all the ones that we did. He did um, Herb Albert. Uh, he got from Herb Albert to Bert Campford. Herb and Bert were good friends, and Herb covered a couple of Bert songs. Bert produced the Beatles session with Tony Sheridan, which I did not know. And then he huh. got to Jack from the McCartney White House thing. Huey Lewis uh, went from the Back to the Future cast to Billy Gibbons to Jack White. Billy played with the racks at the MTV VMAs. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you don't remember that? The um, the ZZ Top uh... Oh, right thing with that they also had uh jim jarmusch was there too i believe that's right that's right that's right zz top and zz top had the pie plates frisbee far out he got lynn manuel miranda was in force awakens and rise of the skywalker with oscar isaac and adam driver who were in inside lewin davis with chris thiele who contributed to the soundtrack who also did a blue series and as we know played with jack at that um prairie home companion thing so that was interesting he found a couple of those there he got sting to terry gilliam to jude law to jack white sting was in baron munchausen directed by terry gilliam who did uh, imaginorium of dr parnassus with jude law who was in cold mountain with jack so he got there that way you could also have gone with terry gilliam who directed time bandits mr mcgorium's wonder emporium oh <laughs> i'm pretty sure he directed time bandits which was part of the Handmade Films production company, which was owned by George Harrison, who was in The Beatles with Paul McCartney, who was honored at the White House where Jack played a song, so you could have got there through George as well. Post Malone to Pharrell Williams to Beck to Jack White. Post Malone has collaborated with Pharrell, who also collaborated with Beck on his latest album. There was just many collaborations with Beck and Jack, so that's how we got there. And uh, he had David Cassidy one. He said this was harder, but he found one through Frankie Muniz, to John C. Riley to Jack White. David Cassidy was in Malcolm in the Middle with Frankie Muniz, who was in Walk Hard, and you could end it right there, but he's extending it with John C. Riley. Funnily enough, I saw John C. Riley in the stairwell of my office building uh, this week, and I was uh, surprised to see he was wearing the same hat as he did on that Blue Room series single he did with that lady <laughs> whose name escapes me at the moment and i remarked to the person i was with oh he wears the hat and they were like what and i was like uh, that's like two people who would understand that it's fine just just forget i said anything <laughs> yeah so those are all good fun roger atness said steve von till and kevin bork chimed in steve did a cover of towns van zant's song if i needed you on a compilation album from there, you're at Towns and Willie Nelson, who covered a bunch of songs together. Jack and Willie have played together also. You could get from Willie to Jack through Marco Price. Did we mention Cletus T. Judd? No. <laughs> Tom Needham said Cletus T. Judd. And Kevin Bork said uh, he's got 10 albums and he does parodies of country songs, including Johnny Cash. And it's not hard to get from Johnny Cash to Jack. Now, that sentence had me thinking, how do you get from Johnny Cash to Jack? Johnny Cash performed with Elvis in the Million Dollar Quartet and Jack White played Elvis in Walk Hard. Does that count? 
People were jumping down my sure. throat about the the kinds of connections here because sometimes I was just like they were friends. People like to see like they work like because I think the Kevin the the Bacon game works like if Bacon worked with this person on a project, right? And so I think people were upset that we weren't always going with that. We'll skip that for now. Anyway, we had Rich Tupika said Frankie Yankovic, which. Uh, Paul, you chimed in with uh, Frankie Yankovic collaborated with Weird Al in the past, or at the very least performed together, and they covered Fell in Love with a Girl. Uh, Weird Al covered Fell in Love with a Girl, yeah. Yes, and then they had a a coffee date. Tom Needham also points out that they did the White Stripes-esque song about Charles Nelson Reilly, CNR, but also uh, you can keep going with Weird Al, and you have uh, Jack Black appearing in Weird Al's tacky video. That's right. uh, Jack Black then also plays on a Blue Series single. So you can make many connections to the Yankovics. And I didn't realize that Frankie Yankovic was not in any way related to Weird Al Yankovic. So I was excited to learn about Frankie Yankovic. So thank you, Rich. It's very nice of you. We also have one more here, uh, Fela Kuti, which actually comes courtesy of our interview with Sean Cannon. Sean Cannon interviewed Fela Kuti, told us about it on our show, and Sean Cannon hosts... The Striped podcast, all about the White Stripes. So I got from Fela Kuti to Sean Cannon to the White Stripes, to uh, Jack White, rather. Oh, and then go. Kevin Bork points out that Fela Kuti played with Ginger Baker on the Live in Berlin, Germany, 1978, I guess, live album. And then, again, says, wouldn't be hard to get Ginger Baker to Jack. I He's filling in a lot of blanks here, Kevin, but I appreciate the zeal. I like the fire in the belly. Kevin Bork's got a lot of answers, and I think the Pancake Batter Award goes to Kevin Bork for all his great work. Thank you for your service, Kevin Thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's been Pancake Batter or something. I don't know. It's great. James, let's talk about the Lost White Stripes album. I just want you to know that the idea that we're all connected by six acquaintances to every other person on Earth is a completely unprovable premise, and you should feel bad. You got me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Paul, let's get into this episode. I'm excited. So where'd it go? Yeah, well, so Jack and Meg waited four years between their final concert tour slash album and the official breakup of the band as we said at the top of the show and a new record was discussed let's get into what that might have been so before Mm. finally making the decision to disband the white stripes were supposedly demoing tracks for a new album and making plans for a release at least to some degree of completion whether it was in the conceptual stage or whatever that's the premise i'm going on here again based on interviews i i read and i'm going to get into exactly what those were and as i mentioned at the top of the show we did ask ben blackwell directly about this supposed project and ben confirmed that there was discussions but nothing solid put down and so we do have to put that disclaimer at the top here what this amounts to is essentially a swirl of rumors around a two to three year period uh, about the White Stripes reuniting. And some of that might have been blanks being filled in by journalists. Some of that might have just been wishful thinking on the part of Jack. It's, it's really hard to say, but we do know that there was extensive discussion. And at a certain point, they do say that there was music played. So I have to believe that there was some kind of music played. And as we do know, there was some music played between 2007 and 2011, but we'll get into that. So in 2007... It was just- all of Herb Alpert's whipped cream and other delights. <laughs> in, 
Then <laughs> Sex and the Trumpet, huh? Um, yeah. So 2007. Uh, I summed up every year with a phrase as it pertains to this topic. And it was also, by the way, super hard to do this topic without making this just a, a show about how the White Stripes broke up, which is not what this show is. We'll do that another time. But um, I called 2007 the year of acute anxiety. So on September 12, 2007, it was reported in the New Musical Express that Meg White was suffering from acute anxiety and was unable to travel, and the remainder of their U.S. tour dates were canceled, including performances in Seattle, Chicago, and the Austin City Limits Festival in Texas, as we touched on briefly with Anthony Bain when he was on the show. It's been a a while. It's called the White Knuckle Thrill Ride Tour, this one. We don't name our tours very often, but we we decided to name this one because it's been so wild, but... Also the charter plane. And, the, and we have a charter plane to go to the Arctic. Oh, really? Yeah, I was going to get to that in a minute. Meg's jumping ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, she talks We tell, so we tell jokes in tandem, too. <laughs> <laughs> we, did, uh, uh, we started in, uh, with the idea to play every province and territory in Canada. Uh, at one show in every one. And uh, since we'd never done a tour of Canada before. So uh, once we started, we also thought, well, let's also play a free show in the daytime. Somewhere we would normally never play, you know. And then we thought, since it's our 10th anniversary, let's use the exact same gear we used 10 years ago, which we still had in the garage. And uh, we just brought it out and brushed it off. And uh, in the daytime, we would use that gear for a free show. And uh, at the time, initially, it looked like the UK tour was still planned to go on in October to continue the Icky Thump album promotion process. But of course, that was not meant to be either. And the White Stripes canceled everything. And yeah. Um, NME decided to get to the bottom of what acute anxiety means, but uh, anyway, Dr. NME reports, according to a definition at the University of Dundee's Counseling Services website, the condition is described as a more severe form of normal anxiety people experience during the stresses of day-to-day life. The service definition lists possible symptoms of acute anxiety, include, including feeling, being, feeling sick, the heart beating faster than normal, spontaneous panic attacks, and the inability to sleep. The definition continues severe or chronic anxiety that can stop you from doing many things in your day-to-day life. You may be unable to walk down the street, go to the supermarket, into a lecture theater, or a pub without feeling anxious, uncomfortable, and upset. It also explains that acute anxiety can make it very hard to maintain a job, which would explain why Meg White needed to take a break for the moment, which is, again, from this NME article. So apparently, it wasn't just Meg afflicted with this acute anxiety jack was experiencing similar symptoms at either this point in time or shortly following it. This is from a Spin article in 2012. It's been five years since the White Stripes ended their final tour early, citing drummer Meg White's acute anxiety. Now, in an admirably candid half-hour video interview with MSN via NME, Jack White has revealed he felt some inner turmoil of his own during... His days with the previous band, according to White, the pressure also led to his other band, the Dead Weathers cover of Van Morrison's 1965 song, You Just Can't Win. So that was inspired, I guess, by Jack's anxiety. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. One more coffee, one more cigarette, one more market time to Chance, 
used to ride on buses. I had no idea that that was the case. It makes sense. He was a very popular boy around that time. Also, why did NME choose that Dundee sort? Like, of all of the sources, they could have gone with the Mayo Clinic. They could have gone with WebMD, but they found, what is this? The, the Dundees. The Crocodile Dundees School for Medicine. Look, enemy does weird things. I can't explain them. Probably a great place. Whatever. I don't know. I just it seemed funny to me that they're just like according to this thing you've never heard of. It's <laughs> everybody was talking about it. All the music websites, regular press, like everyone was talking about Meg's anxiety. I was like, boy, that's a fast way to make somebody feel anxious. I think. Um, but I think yeah. that's what I think. Co told us right, like that's what Meg's yeah. advice to Co was: is don't read any press about yourself because it'll drive you crazy. So I assume Meg wasn't reading any of it. But, you know, you have to think that, especially during that 2009 period, dead weather, the thing that got Jack White famous was he knew it. I think he knew in his heart that it wasn't maybe not, not coming back, at least not the way it had been. So that must have mm. made him anxious. I mean, it explains the pivot to Third Man Records, certainly. But we'll get there. So back to the spin article about Jack's anxiety. Jack says, quote, the judgment that's thrown on you is just unbearable. I went through that a few years ago. I just kind of sat in a corner pondering and letting it torture me. It's no fun when you have no alternatives. That can really seriously make you wonder if you even want to be alive because when you feel that feeling of you just can't win, dot, 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 I don't know. Hmm. And then he goes on to say that those dark times are in the past and that, uh, and then he talks a bit about Blunderbuss and he's excited about that. So that's 2007. So the White Stripes, they just hit it out of the park. They had this major label success. It's their first real top 10 hit with Icky Thump. I know that people don't think of that, but as we've talked on the show many times, that was their biggest commercial success, Icky Thump. Because yep. they had the weight of the of a big label behind them for that one. And then it's all cut short, and they're all in a really bad place. So you have to think like that. The ending of 2007 was particularly probably a dark year for them. But it was also time for changes in their family. Jack and Karen were about to have their son, Henry, at that time yep. as well, which Jack elaborates on here a little bit more. So we'll move on now to 2008, which I've titled New Songs. Because on February 22nd, the same month that Jack and the Tours recorded Consolers of the Lonely, Jack is out there talking about new songs for the White Stripes. So this is in February of 2008. Now, as with most of this research, it's unclear how much filling in the blanks the journalists are doing with Jack's statements. Sometimes they're direct statements, but other times they seem to be a little bit of wiggle room there. This is from this article I found of Jack talking about this. It says, Recently, in addition to putting the finishing touches on a new Tours album, working on a Bob Dylan-helmed tribute to Hank Williams, and writing songs for another White Stripes album, more on that in a second, Jack decided that he wanted to release a Spanish-language single version of Conquest from the Icky Thump album in 2007. So this is an article to hype the fact that Jack sings Spanish language on the Icky Thump single. Hmm. The article continues, and of course... While all that was going on, he was still working on a handful of other projects, including the follow-up to the Tours' Broken Boy Soldiers, which we just talked about, which he's recording in Nashville's Blackbird Studio. Jack says, it's almost done. It's a very different-sounding record. We're having a tough time sequencing it because it's very large, which I thought was funny, because I would definitely describe Consolers as very large. Yeah. The article continues, a couple of new White Stripes songs he's hoping to record when the Tours are finished touring and a long rumored team up with Bob Dylan. The Bob Dylan thing never happened. The recording of new White Stripes songs, dot, 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 
maybe happened, but certainly not in the way that hmm. this article is implying. So this is the first little drip and drab of a statement about new White Stripes material coming on the heels of the Conquest single. It makes me wonder, is this what Blunderbuss became? Because the White Stripes, as we know, it's built around Meg and her drumming, but it's also, you know, it's Jack's songwriting for the most part, almost exclusively. And his solo stuff, everyone kind of went, well, isn't that already what he was doing? So I'm curious, like, well, maybe was a lot of this laid out for his solo, you know, laid out and then put into his solo work because he doesn't leave a stone unturned he he tends to right if he thinks he has a good idea he goes with it that's a wonderful question james i pondered this and we'll touch on that a little bit as we go but to to just address what you're saying for a moment what the hell songs in 2008 to 2009 were intended to be white stripe songs and not used for white stripes project what you're implying mm. is that he would have had to have sat on that shit for like three years four years something in that window it's not saying he didn't and in fact i have some theories as to which ones might have i mean obviously over and over and over well yeah it makes you wonder what the hell those songs were because it certainly wasn't anything for the dead weather because he wasn't writing that unless no yeah that was collaborative and yeah yeah spontaneous Almost cut like a buffalo was meant to be a white stripe song, which is ridiculous, James. <laughs> Let's move on to 2009, which I've dubbed the year of the rumor. Mm. There was a burst of talk about new white stripes material this year as people anticipated Jack's next project following the Raconteurs Consolers of the Lonely release. So in 2009, we do get new white stripes material, sort of. We get sort of yes Jack and Meg on a stage together performing on the final episode of Conan O'Brien's The Official Late Night Show. And they play a beautiful rendition of We're Gonna Be Friends with Meg playing Jack's Airline, which is kind of interesting, and Jack mm-hmm. on acoustic guitar. We're back. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when we were trying to decide which musical guest to feature on our last show after so many years, there was one band that was always at the top of my list. I wasn't sure this could happen. I am personally very thrilled that uh, we could make this happen this evening. Please welcome our good friends for many years, the White Stripes. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, round the shoes, walking blues, count the fence, books and beds. Walking me, Susan Lee, through the park and by the tree. We will rest upon the ground and look at all the birds we found. Safely walk to school without a sound. Safely you know, I think it was Kate McCoy on our Facebook page who recalled that the it was cool to see them together again, but there was a somber nature to their performance at that time. And I agree. 
it was probably somber because it was the last of Conan's shows in that format on that network, but also because like it's a sort of a slower song and I don't know, it felt a little farewelly to me. It's hard to describe, you know, but when you hear them play that song, there's some sadness to it. Yeah. So there's that. But on May 6th, Jack told MusicRadar.com that he and Meg were working on stuff prior to the Conan performance. Prior to the Conan performance. So post him talking about new material in 2008 and prior to appearing on Conan. So we're talking that window of time after Consolers, before Whorehound, he and Meg are working on stuff. He went on to say, quote, we had recorded a couple of songs at the new studio, meaning Third Man Records in Nashville. He says, quote, I talked to her, Meg, about coming by when I was done in the summer rehearsing the dead weather. I won't be done in the summer touring with them, but after the summer jaunt. So he's now making plans for Meg to come by after the Dead Weather summer tour. But he outright says we had recorded a couple songs at the new studio. So they clearly must have been demos. Maybe there was just them goofing around. I don't know. Maybe it was just them breaking in the thing. I have no idea. The way it makes it sound, though, is that Meg isn't in Nashville and that maybe he recorded demos for the white stripes by himself it's possible that he's talking either about that i i could also see this article music radar perhaps getting confused with him saying that the dead weather recorded a couple songs in the new studio but the way this particular article is worded it does it says jack says the two were working on stuff prior to the conan performance quote we had recorded a couple songs at the new studio he says I'm thinking maybe it could be the royal we. He's just saying we as in the band. And the band is just like, it's him and Meg. So he's just like, yeah, we recorded this. And he could just be, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously all of this is speculation. but It is speculation. It seems, it seems like he's just outright saying they're recording the material. Anyway, the article continues. As to when fans can expect a new White Stripes album, White says it won't be too far off. Maybe next year. <laughs> Meaning 2010. I mean, he's sort of right. <laughs> well, he is sort of right. Addressing the issue of Meg's anxiety and the cancellation of the Stripes tour last year, White is emphatic. Their usual rehearsal time was practically non-existent, he says, and on top of Meg's anxiety, he says, quote, I had a baby coming, my son was being born, so we didn't have a lot of time left. We were trying to cram everything in to a short time span, and we were just plowing. So on the topic of 2010 being the, the end date, I think t- 2009 is probably the run-up until Under Great White Northern Lights, which you're gonna get to i'm assuming but the white stripes is on his brain he's he's there he's thinking about it a lot because he's doing he's helping with the editing and he's helping with the project in general so yeah i mean he's he's in contact with rob jones he's getting the artwork done for that and all that whatnot so it's obviously on his brain either way which might be why he's saying all these things about the white stripes well that's what i try to keep in mind too when it comes to him saying that there's new material because sometimes I wasn't sure if the article was interpreting Under Great White Northern Lights to be, quote, new material or a new record or something, because, Mm -hmm. as we know, that was the final White Stripes release, at least while they were together. Unclear. Honestly, we should have asked Emmett Malloy more about it. We should have, (laughs) when he was on the show and we talked to him, Emmett Malloy, the director. We still can. 
on the Great White Northern Lights. Maybe we'll reach out to him. That'd be fun. But anyway, there's a spin article two days later on May 8th that read as follows, and this is the headline of the spin article. White Stripes record songs for new album. Subheader. It won't be too far off. <laughs> Jack White says of the Detroit okay. Duo's next release. Plus... White discusses Meg's triumph over acute anxiety. So normally I don't read entire articles like this, but in this case I think it's important because the information sounds weirdly specific. The article goes, With his new band, The Dead Weather, his other band, The Raconteurs, his collaboration with Dex Romweber duo, and the grand opening of the new Third Man Records complex in Nashville, it's hard to imagine Jack White has time to eat, but he hasn't forgotten about the White Stripes. In fact, the Detroit duo are recording a new album exclamation mark quote it won't be too far off white told music radar the stripes next release maybe next year that's what i just read white added that he and drummer meg have already recorded a couple songs since that's what they're referring to that uh, in that last article uh, aside from uh, a performance in february on the final episode of late night with conan o'brien the stripes have been relatively dormant even canceling their lengthy north american tour due to meg's acute anxiety which says white was a very real problem but one that i'm happy to say is in the past we just needed to stop for a while he said when it comes down to your health it's hard people don't really understand they think you go up on stage and you're having a blast like you're partying or some shit. but that's not the case it's hard work to go on tour we were playing two shows a day in canada then we'd fly to france do a tv show there then we fly back to england on tour and we were just killing it man white added the train was out of control so Part of that is the article inferring from that Music Radar interview, but they came to the same conclusion I did, which is their headline, White Stripes Record New mm. Music, you know? And the article ends with White's band, The Dead Weather, also featuring Dean Fertitta, Jack Lawrence, and Alison Mosshart, will hit the road this summer behind their June 9 release, Whorehound. And then um, uh, that, uh, including the Conan O'Brien show, is all the White Stripes activity that kind of happened in 2009. But clearly... There were discussions, at least. Music, probably. I would say it's at least likely that there was some kind of music recorded. Whether, like you said, it's Jack demoing stuff or whatever. Something was happening. Discussions were being had. I wouldn't be surprised if a White Stripes album was kind of on Jack's mind to maybe launch Third Man. I know that when we talked to Ben, he said that it was all spontaneous and Whorehound was the thing. And it wasn't necessarily meant to be that, but it was... I feel like Jack is might might have been in the back of his mind thinking a White Stripes record is the way to do this. But also, I try to look at what's happening tour wise with the members of like if of any group. If I'm trying to determine like, oh, is the new album coming up? If he's going on tour with the Dead Weather, and as we know, he wanted to continue touring with the Dead Weather and continue making music with the Dead Weather. Would he schedule that? to coincide with a White Stripes release? Because wouldn't he want to announce tour dates for a White Stripes release? Yeah. Timing-wise, it seems odd to have that tour on top of another band's release. He's never done that before, although he's, I mean, obviously he's the kind of person who has done many things he has never done before. He's surprised us many times. But It comes down to that weird window, that post-consolers, pre-Whorehound window. It's yeah, that time period must have been very confusing one for Jack and everyone around him. Yeah, I mean the creative energy got out regardless, right? So. But no one knew what was going to happen next, and it reminded me, James, a lot of what we learned on the Striped podcast about Meg maybe not wanting to continue the Stripes in advance of that 
performance we get on the on the vault you know that uh, performance in 1999 mm-hmm. it reminded me a lot of that like there was a lot of uncertainty jack was preparing as we heard on the striped podcast jack was preparing a band <laughs> to play with that wasn't meg yeah it was going to be blackwell and yeah, what is it Brent, like brenda benson something cardboard yeah whatever wet, it was wet cardboard or something like that <laughs> it reminds me a lot of that and it's so funny that it happened almost a decade to the to the day <laughs> not quite to the day but it, yeah. it happened about a decade later it's a complex band there there's a lot of history between those two anyway We'll move on to 2010 here. Another round of rumors, James. Another round of rumors. This is the last big year of hope for a White Stripes reunion. And then after that, it sort of Mm. dies down. But in May of 2010, a similar article to the May of 2009 spin article pops up again from Jack via MTV.com. The article is titled, The White Stripes Are Back. Again, these headlines were cracking me up. Are they? reading these things. Yeah. So here's the article. It's been over two long years in coming, but the White Stripes look set to reunite. The rock duo have been on hold whilst member Meg White recovered from her anxiety problem that caused the split. But according to frontman Jack White, she's back on track. When asked about the band getting back together, he told the Times, I would like to. I don't think her anxiety exists anymore, but I don't know. She was there when we were rehearsing for the dead weather. She was there when we were rehearsing for the dead weather. That's cool. And my wife, Karen Elson's band, was rehearsing in the next building. So Meg is in the freaking building. That's what makes me think there was music put down. She was there when the dead weather were rehearsing, which makes sense based on that 2009 article about them recording a couple yeah. songs, you know? It makes me think of those albums a little differently, knowing that she was in the studio. But you know what sucks a lot is that this one tour cancellation, the reason for it basically dominated the headlines for the rest of their career. Like Meg's acute anxiety was like the one pro like it was like, oh, this thing, it came up. They canceled the tours for it. Okay, whatever. It's a big deal, but it's also, you know, it's help getting her back in line. The band isn't broken up. Nothing's right. wrong. She's just recovering from a thing. And yet, yeah. because they never got back to do another album or another tour, everybody's, like, immediately jumping on acute anxiety. Like, two years later, they're I still know. like, she's still recovering from acute anxiety. No, like, she's... It's That was Jack saying, like, no, that I don't even know. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. <laughs> But because because this happened during the height of their fame, like it just it's everything yeah. the headlines want to talk about or everything the headlines want to blame for setbacks. And it's not always the case and that bothers me a great deal. That's that sucks. You're saying the woman became the scapegoat? Impossible. <laughs> I do like that the narrative has changed in recent years. I don't know if you read this article. I found that a lot doing research for this topic called Meg White, colon, this century's loudest introvert or rock and roll's loudest introvert. And I do like that the narrative has changed more from like, there was something wrong with her to, no, she was just an introvert. Like, that's a different type of personality. Jack is an extrovert. Yes. He is going for the camera. He's, it's like the McCartney-George Harrison dynamic. McCartney's a ham george is a private person you know like that's the difference there it's not something's wrong with meg it's just that she's just different you know right meg can you finally tell the whole world finally once and for all that people who think i never let you talk when we're doing interviews you tell them 
But that's uh, well. No, tell, just tell me what you're paying, Mama. Quiet. <laughs> she can't even answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the record, you mean to say that Jack doesn't always hog the interviews yeah, or yeah. talk uh, talk when talk over you when you? What, people who say I'll, why? I'll people say who say it like this. What I'll would you say, say to people who say Jack? Oh, Jack won't ever let Meg talk. What would you say to that? <laughs> you guys heard it here first. That article continues talking a little more about the recent goings on at the time of Jack's stuff. He says, but the singer guitarist, who's also released the second Rack and Tours album, Consolers of the Lonely, and the Dead Weathers debut, Whorehound, says a reunion could take a while. He adds, Meg is still involved and in everything, but we've never sat down and gone, okay, so don't forget to block out three months. We never did that. Even in the thick of craziness of the White Stripes, I have never planned after the month coming up. But I know that it will all be filled up really fast. So he's saying there's no definite plan, but she's still involved. Things are happening. Mm-hmm. It's all coming together. And I don't plan ahead. Yeah, and I don't plan ahead. Uh, what I love about this article is that it, it places Meg at dead weather rehearsals and interacting with Karen's band, which means Meg is really in the picture throughout the beginnings of the next phase of Jack's career. Allison Mossart, Olivia Jean. These are people that are all becoming new and major presences in his life at this point. And during that, they're still talking about new White Stripes music. So I do love that little glimmer there right at the beginning where all these new faces are introducing themselves. But they're still like, uh, maybe, maybe the Stripes will do it. So in a 2010 interview with Pop Matters, which we discussed in our Sea of Cowards episodes, Alison Mossart mentions that the band's members, meaning the Dead Weather, wanted to make that record and didn't necessarily want to all wait around for their respective groups to record new music. She actually calls out the White Stripes specifically here in relation to Jack, not the Tours. If the White Stripes did start and stop a record or talk about one in 2009, it would make perfect sense for Allison to say something like this because there would have been that possibility of a Stripes break in the Dead Weather. It'd be like if the Icky Thump sessions broke down and the Racks just decided to go straight back into the studio after the Broken Boy Soldiers tour. It's possible she's referring to uh, Under Great White Northern Lights, though, because that is all happening in this 2010 window. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, back when doing the Sea of Cowards research, I found an article for lesinrocks.com where Jack was interviewed and was asked the question, can the White Stripes and the Dead Weather and the Tours live in the same universe? Jack says, this is obviously impossible as long as I'm in full tour or recording with the Dead Weather, like you said, James. But that said, all these albums are productions for me. Discs that I can do under the name The Dead Weather, The White Stripes, The Raconteurs. One could say that I produce an album by Alison Mossart, The Raconteurs. That's Jack White producing Brendan Benson. Even Loretta Lynn, her album is obviously a Loretta Lynn album, but people might as well say it's an album from Loretta Lynn's band, which I am in. In the end, they are all albums that I produce that we talk about a group when we record anything. I don't care. These are just albums that I want to do, projects that I want to give birth to. We call it what we want. So that's him sort of downplaying you know what's that line uh, you create your own box you don't have to listen to any other label makers <laughs> spit in your obituary and yet though he will go on to say that during his boarding house reach recording he had songs that were definitely raconteurs songs and not jack white songs <laughs> which is yeah. putting them back in boxes neatly right. but that's okay that's okay that's the we're all just copying god <laughs> I re-listened to Boarding House Reach on the drive, and I was like, boy, this is a weird fucking album. Um, It's weird. It's good, but it's weird. Yeah. 
Anyway, Jack continued to tell Les and Rox, he, he really downplayed the Meg stuff at this point. He says, quote, We did not talk about a new album with Meg yet, but we could do one pretty quickly. I do not know. As with the dead weather, we never planned any of this. The albums, the tours, they arrived when they arrived. I know pretty much what I'm going to do in the next six months, but that's it. I have been on many projects at the same time, even at the very beginning of the White Stripes, even before, and uh, my schedules are always quite unpredictable. So that's a little bit of a contradiction to the other stuff he said, but I think he's just trying to like say, no, 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 my focus right now is the dead weather. There's no immediate plan for a record with Meg. All of this is making me picture just Meg sitting in a studio at a drum kit, just like ready and waiting. <laughs> and Jack's just like, hold up a minute. <laughs> hold on. Let me make four other bands. Just give me a second. <laughs> but like at the same time, I know that's not the case. Like I know Meg's not like eagerly waiting to do this. It just keeps seeming like Jack's like, yeah, we could do this anytime, anytime, anytime. We'll do this anytime. But first, <laughs> let's do the dead weather. He's living his life at this point. Did he call her down to do an album and then wind up doing Whorehound in the meantime? <laughs> like, <laughs> it sounds like she was there. Like, okay, so we know through the several Whorehound episodes we did that um, that, that was the result of the Tours tour ending, Jack having the new studio, LJ was in town, Allison was in town, Fertitta was in town they went into the studio so it sounds like meg was also in town yeah probably also for the opening of the store right just to be like a face for the opening but anyway on november 11th 2010 we get another round of rumors ignited this time by a variety magazine interview in which jack is supposedly hinting at the reunion so he's doing it again the article says the long wait for the white stripes may be coming to a close according to jack the tireless musical force hints in the december issue vanity fair that the dynamic duo is ready to get back to work quote from jack we thought we'd do a lot of things that we've never done a full tour of Canada, a documentary, coffee table book, live album, a boxed set. White told the magazine in an interview promoting the new 333-piece limited edition White Stripes merchandise collection. White was completing the box set for the White Stripes and that it was a laborious process that paved the way for a comeback of the White Stripes. It was one long project that took almost three years, he said. Now we've gotten a lot of that out of our system. Meg and I can get back in the studio and start fresh. Hmm. He's still talking about this. He's talking about getting back in this. This is now two years worth of rumors. And and they're all started by him saying it. So it's not even really a rumor. It's just sort of, he's saying it a lot. How would you even go about that at this point? Like, this is a band that he's had, with rare exception, an album a year. Yeah. With, and then nothing. Right. for three years to immediately go back into the album it's like the beatles doing free as a bird like it's gonna sound different it's gonna be different the energy may have been just wrong right. may they may have gotten in the studio and it just may have been wrong jack may have started off with a cover like he does to try and get people in the mood or to get meg in the mood and it, it didn't didn't function or something you know it it could have just gone wrong it might not have clicked didn't feel right anymore, maybe. Perhaps. This is all speculation. It's all speculation. I mean, that's all unsolved mysteries. Before we leave 2010, you know, we should say, obviously, Under Great White Northern Lights was a big White Stripes release, and Meg did do press for it. She went to that premiere. Yeah. 
so there are photos of those two in 2010 with Emmett Malloy, <laughs> you know, doing the yeah. whole thing. It still felt like Icky Thump, though. Like all, <laughs> it did. Because it was the Icky Thump tour, it just felt like Icky Thump never ended. It yeah. just lingered there. It was stunted. Their growth was stunted. And the same goes for what I was saying before, the acute anxiety. That just felt like an icky thump problem, and that problem lingered. Right. So that's two years' worth of rumors, two years' worth of will this happen. We finally get to 2011, and the White Stripes formally break up on February 2nd. And I don't know about you, James, but when I heard my boss told me, and I said, I know. Like, that's how I responded. Like, no, I know. Because at the time, it felt like they had yeah. not been together for so long that I was wondering why this was news at all. <laughs> like, it was obvious that it was obvious that this had gone away. Yeah, and we had both been kind of in the third man w- world for long enough where we both kind of did know. I got the same thing. Um, I mean, I had, I had seen the, the letter, too, because it was making all the press and all this other stuff. And, you know, it was... I have Google alerts and I, I, yeah, I get James has Google alerts, Uh, but uh, I was in my studio in college is not in my apartment, but in my actual like artist studio and friend of mine who does not like Jack White, he came over, he's like, Hey, your guy broke up his band. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, it's everyone could see it coming a mile away. Yeah. Go listen to against me or whatever you're going to (laughs) say. Um, yeah, so it was people were coming up to me and going like, hey, hey, they broke up. And I'm like, hey, yeah, I know. Yeah, we, we all know. <laughs> but I, I don't want to put it in a weird way. I know it meant a lot to a lot of people as well. So I know it, it did take people by surprise because they, you know, the white stripes mean a lot to other folks out there. So not that they don't mean a lot to us as well, but that, you know, I, I know a lot of people were heartbroken to hear this letter and this news because it was the truth that they didn't want to hear. It's like the parents telling you that they're divorced. Well, right. Well, like if I thought for a moment, we weren't going to get any more new music out of him. I would have been sad as sad as those people who were sad about this. But at the time I was too excited by sea of cowards and all this third man records activity and all this stuff. It's disingenuous to say not to care about the white stripes breaking up. Obviously I I did. I'm, you know, I love that band, but I, I didn't for a moment think, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get any more Jack White music. So I was like, I, it didn't really bother me because I was already used to a world without it. And I was already interested in the other things he was doing. And to a large degree, I think as a fan, I tend to be more engaged with his stuff outside of the stripes than his stuff within the stripes, just by virtue of volume at this point there's just so much other stuff to listen to and i've been very i mean that's a whole other topic for discussion but anyway that's a long way of saying like yeah it was like oh it's kind of a bummer but we saw the writing on the wall and i was excited to see the new directions agreed yes so the only other thing i have in 2011 we'll kind of breeze through the last of this stuff here because it's not much more but while staying at a hotel in detroit during this year at an unspecified time jack says he had a dream about a love that he can't have anymore and he gets up in the middle of the night to pen the song blunderbuss and i thought that was interesting because he was staying in a hotel in detroit Hmm. was he visiting meg i don't know that's pure speculation on my part i just thought that was kind of interesting we get into 2012 and of course talking about blunderbuss the blunderbuss album marks the definitive statement on the trajectory of jack's career following the demise of the white stripes we're going to get into a couple songs later that, you know, you and I talked about maybe 
maybe some things from blunderbuss or white stripes holdovers. It's really actually harder to pin down than you might think. But there is a song on that album called Hippopotamus Poor Boy, which is a tune Jack dreamed like Blunderbuss. And at the time, it generated quite a bit of talk about Meg, because there's some lyrics in there. When you read the lyrics of Hippopotamus Poor Boy, it sounds an awful lot like an indictment of, well, I'm just going to keep doing this on my own. I don't need you anymore. He says, let the stripes unfurl. (laughs) He's talking supposedly about the American flag and went on the um, record saying that was about the American flag and not the white stripes. But he said he didn't mind the other interpretation that it was about the white stripes because it dealt with the same subject he was going for, which was, quote, white people selling authenticity through black music. (laughs) So that's an indictment on himself. Which is weird. When I get into the game, but it's always the same. I'm the man with the name. Hit the bottom of Oh boy. Oh boy. Call me whatever you may. I ain't stopping the train. I got a bill full of fame. Hit the bottom of I remember him saying that that had nothing to do with the stripes and everybody going, you're wrong. And Jack going like, all right, cool. I mean, he is the hip eponymous poor boy. Eponymous, white, yeah. white stripes, Meg White, I'm going to take your name, always staying the same, whatever it is. Anyway, in 2013, we get a bizarre rumor that is sparked by an April Fool's article, which which really took off that year that said Tilda Swinton was going to step in as the new drummer for the band. And supposedly the source claimed that the duo was recording an album called Evangelical Trout, um, which I thought was really <laughs> funny. It was started by a website called The Beat, and then it got picked up by like a bunch of people before like the world realized it was April 1st. In 2014, Jack pours a bunch of cold water over White Stripes reunion rumors by saying that he and Meg don't talk anymore. During the time of the Lazaretto promotion, any hope of that reunion was dashed. He says, I don't think anyone talks to Meg. She's always been a bit of a hermit, he said. When we lived in Detroit, I'd have to drive over to her house if I wanted to talk to her. So now that's almost never. So White declined to talk about his marriage to Meg or anything like that, but described her as extremely emotionally reserved. That aspect of her personality frustrated him when the two were in a creative partnership. He said, quote, she's one of those people who won't high five me when I get the touchdown. She viewed me that way of, oh, big deal. You did it. So what? Almost every single moment of the white stripes was just like that. We'd be working in the studio and something amazing would happen. And I'm like, damn, we just broke into a new world right there. And Meg's sitting there in silence. White recalled a quote from Ringo Starr that rang true to him during those moments. He said, quote, I remember hearing Ringo Starr say, I always felt sorry for Elvis 
because in the Beatles we had each other to talk to about what we felt like. Elvis was by himself. And when Jack says, I was like, shit, try being in a two-piece where the other person doesn't talk. Her lack of loquaciousness aside, however, White praised Meg's drumming and said the world misses her contributions. He says, I quote, would often look at her on stage and say, I can't believe she's up here. I don't think she understood how important she was to the band and to me and to music. She was the antithesis of a modern drummer, childlike and incredible and inspiring. All the not talking didn't matter because on stage, nothing I do will top that. So that statement of his picked up a lot of controversy at the time, and it he had to issue like a retraction saying he didn't mean to downplay Vegas, this and that. I, I really do chalk that up to like, hey, they were married and have an extremely complex relationship that other people don't understand. And so mm-hmm. they're both going to feel things for each other that are meant for those two and, and nobody else. But um, it got a lot of people talking. Yeah, he also probably just has thoughts, spoke with a little extra candor than he usually does, and uh, got quoted away and carried away. And, you know, people say things. I don't think it was more than that, but yeah. So that really threw the cold water over the reunion stuff. And at this point, there's just no hope anymore. Like they're, they're done. They did release a joint statement against Donald Trump in 2016, <laughs> where they said, quote, regarding the use of seven nation army in a Donald Trump campaign video, the white stripes would like to unequivocally state that they have nothing whatsoever to do with this video. And they are disgusted by this association and by the illegal use of their song. That also follows the acoustic recordings album, which, we'll touch on in a moment but 2017 the line goes quiet as it does with jack as well and then in 2018 it looks like he starts to kind of play the legacy game when it comes to like boarding house reach era he's understanding that you know he made some hubbub with his the 2014 comments and in 2018 his comments are sometimes equally controversial but they always like really err on the side of meg being important so i think he was very much had that on his mind Mm -hmm. He told Uprox in March of 2018, they asked him, like, what made the White Stripes so successful? And he, he says, I think it was Meg. Her appeal and what she brought to the band was this amazing minimalism that broke things down, much like so many artists in the Cubist movement or things like that, the still movement of the 20s. What she was bringing to me was reeling me in. I would write a song and she would reel it in and it would become minimalistic and much more powerful. It was more powerful than if we had three guitar players in the band, and that's all to her and the beauty that she brought to the music. There was also some weird comments about like people asking about New White Stripes material and him saying, Jack White solo is just what White Stripes would be, and that kind of took off on its own. But that's hmm. kind of the brief history of what happened there. As you can see, there's a big, it's almost like a roller coaster, though. It's like a big down point in 2007, and then it, the hope really climbs until 2011 and then it just crashes to the floor yeah but it sounds like some songs were recorded i mean at the very least they talked about it (laughs) (laughs) do you want to hear uh, some possible tracks i think might have been on this thing i'd love to (laughs) okay so one we know that he tried with the white stripes and might have tried again was over and over and over which you stated Oh, the way to the 
wound up on the Boarding House Reach album. We know it was hanging around. We know that Jack tried it with his various bands. And, uh, of course, via Ben Blackwell, that was a riff that Jack originated with him and Meg in 2005 for Get Behind Me, Satan. The Blue Orchid riff only predates it by a few days. So that one, if it wasn't going to go to Jay-Z... <laughs> <laughs> might have gone to her i feel like at this by 2009 if they're recording then that places it after him and jay-z doing behind my ray-bans so maybe it wouldn't have been on the white stripes record but who the f- knows i don't know that song was a sisyphean boulder yeah. and i feel like he settled by putting it on boarding house reach <laughs> he should continue to try it with different iterations and never succeed i w- <laughs> Yeah, so that leads to the second track that could have been on this hypothetical Lost White Stripes album, City Lights, which was also recorded during the Get Behind Me Satan sessions and was uh, dormant for almost a a decade, or over a decade, rather, until the Acoustic Recordings record came out in 2016. I want to grab a stranger's hand and clearly a favorite for for jack he performed it on prairie home companion uh, as well as released a single version of it with love is the truth for the vault releases and uh, it was nominated for a grammy for uh, best american roots song and had a, a beautiful michelle gondry video so city lights it's possible that thing would have wound up on there as you said once he has an idea and he puts it down he tends not to just let it sit he tends to do something with it so it's possible city lights could have been on this hypothetical record Sure. Well, the next one I have on here is one that could have evolved into a song, let's say, and that's a pun because it's the song Monkeys Have It Easy, which was an unreleased outtake from Icky Thump. And it's kind of rough, but there's enough guts there where you can hear how it could have evolved into a bigger song, especially if you put lyrics on it. that one that's a real possibility i think they could have possibly expanded on monkeys have it easy okay considering we only have like a minute and a half of it to go by but yes i agree if i was to take another stab i would say love interruption has a distinct voice to it that could also work on stage it wouldn't be the same song though right because obviously it's a duet but uh it would be I, I think it would be more 
angry <laughs> in the white stripes <laughs> than it is on Blunderbuss. But I think that song could work. And, and also going on Blunderbuss on and on and on has, you know, that kind of weepy, get behind me Satan kind of feel to it. So... Those are interesting suggestions, James, because, well, before I get to the Blunderbuss, so I did I did a pretty extensive look-see at the writing process of each of the Blunderbuss songs, and I've narrowed it down to about three tracks that I think are at least plausible because they don't put a timestamp on it. Although, you saying that bit about the duet for uh, Love Interruption leads to a point I was going to end with, but I'll just bring it up now. I had some speculation about what we could have seen. Would we have seen maybe Meg on acoustic guitar on this record because of the Conan performance? Could she have duetted with Jack on that song? Possibly. Like she's duetted with him before. It's possible we would have seen that or something to that effect. Based off the, the Conan animation and story and stuff, it seems like Jack was doing that more as a specialty thing than anything. But, uh, and Meg seemed nervous about it all, but... True, true. Maybe. But before we get to the Blunderbuss ones, I have one last one that I thought could have popped up, perhaps on this hypothetical album. The White Stripes always have a cover, so I was thinking maybe the song Phonograph Blues, which is a cover played at the band's final concert performance in South Haven, Mississippi, on July 31st, 2007. That was released on that um, Nugs last performance yeah the vault performance too yeah the yeah under mississippi lights or whatever beatrice i love my photograph between broken my winding chain It's pure speculation. I think there, there's at least a chance. It's a Robert Johnson tune, and it was uh, similar to a, a, a different song at the time called um, Kind-Hearted Woman Blues. If there was going to be a cover on it, maybe that's it? I don't know. Possibly. They tend to workshop those covers, and then they make their way onto albums, so it's possible. Of the blunderbuss material, again, I found three that I think are plausible. The first was 16 Saltines. Okay. Yeah, it's very riffy. Right. It sounds like a White Stripes song. And we do know how it came about. I, I get, apparently, Jack's daughter 
asked him for a snack after school one day, and he asked her what she wanted, and she replied, 16 saltine crackers. Evidently, he yelled back, you'll have three. And that's from his own words, so I thought it was kind of funny. And apparently he wrote it directly after that and played the song back to her. But we don't necessarily know when that was. So, possible. It's at least possible. Yeah. That it was kicking around. If I had to put Rubber to the Road on that one, I would say it wasn't written for the White Stripes, but it really sounds like a White Stripes song. The one that I think is definitely possible is at least the melody of what became Trash Tongue Talker. And I say that because it was the first song recorded for Blunderbuss, and it has to be included on this list, if for nothing else than by its proximity to the White Stripes, but it also sounds like something off of, like, Distill or something. I got no truck with your woman always coming, although when I ain't home. Jack made up the lyrics on the spot, but the melody poured out of him in the studio. Was he perhaps planning on using this for the RZA session? Was it a White Stripes song? Was it straight up just improvised along with the lyrics? There are a lot of questions, but I think it's at least a worthy candidate for inclusion because the idea of him just sort of bursting into this song makes me think maybe a nugget of it was laying around. I don't know. Yeah, it's got a distinct effect and cause vibe to it also. Yeah. With the, the kind of dirty piano and clangy cymbals and stuff on it. You know, it's it, it's got that vibe. Right. And then Hippopotamus Poor Boy was the other one. I also feel like Trash Tongue Talker could have easily have been written with Beck around. True. So. Maybe. So Hippopotamus Poor Boy, maybe. Don't know. If he had that melody laying around that he dreamed, it's unclear when he actually dreamed it. And... If there was some subconscious Meg stuff in there, maybe it was one that he was kicking around for those sessions. Speculation. Fly Farm Blues was also supposedly written and recorded purely for It Might Get Loud, but, I mean, is it possible that was the germ of something he was developing with Meg? It certainly is around that time. Uh, maybe it was in, you know, his mind's eye to use it <clears throat> with Meg, something like that. Don't know. But those are the songs I came up with for that. Well, Paul, I like your list. It's a good list. And uh, we should put it in a playlist of some kind. Yeah. Anyway, James, that's the White Stripes album that was almost Does Something Exist? Who knows? Will we ever get it? I don't know. Possibly. We have a vault. So things could happen in the vault. Who the f- knows? I don't know. But I wish we got it. It would have been nice. Well, we heard two previously unheard songs from the first album or at least one previously unheard song from the first album, from The Vault. So, uh, And we're apparently we're getting more with the, the style. Getting some more unheard music. So here's hoping to get some unheard demos of this uh, lost treasure. Yeah. Well, what do you say we throw it to a third person this week, James? Let's throw it over that gap. The chasm. And have Alfred Molina lie to us and us be chased by a boulder into the third man segment. Paul, let's go. Oh, 
Okay, we would like to welcome back to the show founder of the Yesterday and Today podcast and our dearest uncle, Wayne Kaminsky. Uh, Dad, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good to be here. It's good to be anywhere. I've done a fine job in uh, screwing up our recording time this morning, so I'm going to start out this interview by apologizing to my dearest family, and I will hurl myself out the window. I'd whip you if I had a horse. I'd horse whip you if I had a horse. Okay. Okay. Well, awesome. Uh, (laughs) So today on the show, we're talking about the Lost White Stripes album, the uh, album that was not meant to be the uh, White Stripes broke up in 2011 after sort of four years of ambiguity. And one of the things James and I have been talking about on the show today has been about the idea that the difference between Meg and Jack's personalities was both a contributing factor to the band's success, but ultimately a contributing factor in their breakup as well, and explain why a new album just never materialized. Jack is a notorious extrovert. He's always mugging for the camera. He's got that fame bug. He's got that showmanship bug. And Meg is a uh, a classic introvert. She's kind of quiet. She doesn't talk much. She sticks to the back. But she was an important component in that mixture that made the White Stripes so interesting. And the reason why we have you on today, Dad, is because the Beatles had four personalities in the mix as opposed to the two. But one of the personality dynamics that we found to be similar to Jack and Meg was perhaps Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Paul being that, you know, mugging for the camera kind of extrovert, never met a PR event he didn't like, and George sort of perpetually looking kind of uncomfortable in those settings. And even though he had that fame bug too, to a degree, it's different. It's a different thing. It feels different than Paul's. And so we just wanted to talk to you a little bit here today about Paul and George, how that relationship sort of evolved, particularly in the post-breakup years. And uh, we're going to see if we can draw any parallels to Jack and Meg and, uh, you know, hopefully have some fun here today and not jump out any windows. <laughs> I've already jumped. I'm taking my first step out just to see what's going on. Paul is responsible for George joining the Beatles. Uh, George is younger than Paul by, uh, what is it, 18 months, right? And he's still 18 months older to this day, something like that. Um, <laughs> I think time stood still at this point. So he brought him into the fold. And then as that group progressed, you know, George was really the baby brother, as Paul likes to say these days, but certainly backseat to the powerhouse of the Lennon and McCartney force there at the front of the Beatles. They were the two songwriters to start. And, you know, George really did struggle for a long time. And I think held on to a lot of that bitterness at not being recognized up until, you know, the band wound up splitting. And yet George always sort of seemed willing or to leave the door open while the Beatles were still a thing to do more. Can you talk a little bit about George's struggles within the band during the Beatles and how that evolved through the 60s? Yeah, George did struggle a bit. You know, he wasn't a very strong songwriter. And again, Meg, I'm sorry, I this is no parallel to you (laughs) as far as your songwriting ability is concerned. Um, if you happen to be listening, but, um, yeah, George did struggle a bit. He wasn't a very good songwriter. It took him a long time to start crafting songs. He looked up to the other two, the the main songwriters, Ringo and Pete, uh, (laughs) Paul and John, um, of how to write songs. And he always tried to get 
uh, ideas from both of them. You know, I mean, John gave him a, an interesting tip a long time ago saying, you know, once you start writing a song, it's best not to put it away, but to um, work on it straight through because you start to lose the train of thought of where, where you were going with the, talk or with the tune. So, yeah, I mean, George did have some problems. As far as uh, him being outgoing, from what I understand and listening to so many interviews, George was pretty much a ham at home, or at least maybe that's what their relatives wanted him to be. I was watching a show uh, called Joe Para. It's on uh, Adult Swim. And he was in a, um, a hair salon with his grandma, and all these grandmas were there, too, and ladies and, and relatives. They were all getting their haircuts. And they said to him, sing us a song, and we'll give you a quarter. Uh, like we used to when you were a kid. So that, that, you know, the reason why I brought that up is because that's exactly the way Harrison's family was from what I heard from George Harrison in many interviews. You know, he would go to these family functions. He would go when the, the adults were having beverages and having a party and they would say, Oh, little Georgie, sing us something. Seemingly not dissimilar from Paul. That was one of Paul's things too, right? Um, Paul was more, like, those you know, you pieces, mentioned, yeah, right? you, 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 well, you mentioned more Paul was a showman way back when, right. and that's true. Um, his father not only was a salesman, but also was a frustrated uh, musician being in the Jack, uh, was it the Jack Mack uh, jazz band or vaudeville band or something where he played piano. So he was always the center of attention at parties, uh, Paul's dad, and Paul would all, you know, idolize that, and he thought it was great, and that's where he got his niche to different, you know, vaudeville-type songs and, and things later on in right. his career. But back to George, uh, you know, he had a little bit of that, and it, it was being nurtured by his family. It kind of carried through in the early part of the Beatles, although he couldn't sing the way Lennon wanted him to sing. So Lennon pretty much took control of the songs. So it frustrated right. George. Maybe the, the difference there is George was maybe more prompted because, you know, if he's being offered quarters to sing and things like that and then brought into the Beatles and, you know, he's being guided quite a bit. Whereas, oh, sure. You know, maybe Paul would be taking more initiative. Right. Maybe he's, Paul had more of that sort of bullish spirit, you know. I feel, yeah, I feel like Paul would be like, look what I can do. And George would be like prompted to, to do it. Yeah. So going back into, you know, Jack White versus and Meg, you know, in their personalities, you two would know better than I. Is Meg more of an introvert that way in, in oh, her yeah. writing? Well, she doesn't do songwriting so much. Has she ever written a song? I That is a very good question. I don't know. I feel like the answer is no. Well, she, she's not the songwriter of the group, I guess. I don't know if she's ever been credited with it. She may not be the songwriter, yeah. but, you know, maybe perhaps she wrote a song in their private time. Maybe she gave a song to Jack, or maybe she was the inspiration. Well, obviously, I think she was an inspiration for a couple of songs, but... Um, well, yeah, yeah, I think she was never a musician to begin with, and then moved into musicianship at the behest of Jack, and play started playing the drums because of him. If she's ever done it in her free time or something like that, I'm not aware of, but... From what we know, she was never crafting the music so much as guiding the music with her drumming. Okay. Uh, it's, it sounds more similar to McCartney and Linda, Paul and Linda. I know. I was just thinking <laughs> that. I, but Linda wrote songs, good or bad. She did write them. Yes. I sat through 
28 takes of Seaside Woman. Uh, You're welcome. So I can definitely. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good song. <laughs> but some of those early piano demos are a little rough. Their musicianship aside, it's, I think the dynamic of somebody whose natural inclinations to burst out versus somebody's natural inclinations to look within are very evident with Paul and George. I mean, you look at a song like Within You, Without You or something like that, and, and I think it that obviously speaks to some of George's religious beliefs as well, or even the inner light where George is talking about you don't have to leave your home to see everything in existence, you know, which obviously he got from some religious texts and things like that. But I'm interested in those two as being you know, at, at one point overshadowed by their counterparts or by their by their opposites, but also sort of supported and propped up because Paul, as we know, was very supportive of George's songs in the studio. In fact, sometimes when John wouldn't even show up, it would be Paul there helping to craft the song with George, and, and he was very, very present. And it's the same thing with Jack, you know, with Meg. Jack presented Meg as the centerpiece of that band, and was very interested in making sure that her sound was at the heart of the group. Talking a bit about George's songwriting for a moment, Dad, what would you say was George's maybe, would you, what would you call his breakthrough song or the song where he maybe started to reach that Lennon-McCartney echelon? Uh, Isn't It a Pity, I believe, would be probably that song that's on the All Things Must Pass album. Um, Written in 66 for entry into either Revolver or um, uh, Sgt. Pepper, yeah. That's an interesting choice. Um, But I think that that song really brought him his mojo, if you you will. It stroked him to a point where, you know, he's not writing I Need You or he's not writing uh, Don't Bother Me or anything like that. He's writing more of a song of his emotions, uh, very deep feelings on the world, on himself, on consciousness in general. that's the one that really was stands out to me it's not one of my favorites but you know it's one of those that stands out to me it was so interesting that he must have known that as well by actually including two versions of that nine minute song on all things was fast (laughs) has jack ever done that has he ever written a song and liked it so much that he recorded two different versions of it on on an album or on multiple albums? Well, the Carolina drama is the only one that comes to mind. That was on a, like a, essentially a greatest hits, but they issued a alternate version that he liked better. I think he does that more live. In fact, I was listening to 
an interview the other day where he was talking about the idea of playing the same song multiple times in a set or something like that or revisiting it. But that I think that's more of sort of in the moment kind of flavor or what he feels like the crowd needs at that particular juncture. But no, I I don't think Jack's ever done anything like that. I don't think any of the other Beatles ever did anything like that. I mean, there's B-side stuff, if you count that, where he's re-recording songs in different ways. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, like so, Top Yourself and that sort of thing. You look pretty in your fancy dress But I detect unhappiness You never speak, so I have to guess You're not free And then there's the the stripes, uh, the one that I did like the electro pop version, right. or something. Yeah, uh, what was it? The, I uh, can't remember the song off the top the of my head. Fr- it was uh, pretty good looking for a girl. They did the auto tuned version, the frat mix yeah. or whatever. <laughs> that yeah, so something like that. <laughs> but I don't think that's because he liked it. I think that was just him commenting on uh, right. music of the modern era. So James, do you have a, an opinion on uh, a breakthrough song for George or one where you felt like his writing took a leap? Taxman has some pretty deep thoughts, albeit they're about tax collectors. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that song in general is, is the one I think of as the song that started George's songwriting. That's the earliest kind of iteration of what I consider solo George. Well, it kicks off Revolver, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's it's the one, it sounds drastically different than every Beatle tune he's written before. I guess that's where I land on it. I mean, it's not as... It doesn't have the same voice that he'll come to find later on, but it's in that vein. So we look at the Beatles breakup and and the White Stripes breakup. The the Beatles go out in a bit more of a uh, hostile fashion. The White Stripes sort of fizzle. But it's interesting to note how George and Paul's dynamic drastically changed after the breakup and Jack and Meg's, I guess to a similar degree, but you know, there is a major drifting apart between Paul and George. George initially takes Lennon's side in most matters up until a point, and then they're sort of sporadically talking, maybe on and off, but there's that quote from George where he says, Well, I'd, I would be in a band with John Lennon tomorrow, but I would never be in a band with Paul McCartney again something to that effect. I wonder if it's just those two personalities ultimately just weren't meant to be. I'm not sure if that's personalities, Paul. I think it's just maybe musical personalities. Don't forget, Paul was uh, George's friend before anyone else, and they still remain friends even after they broke up. It's interesting to see in doing the Yesterday and Today podcast over the years, the many photographs, the many interviews George does talk of Paul in a positive light, and there are so many pictures, photographs of Paul and George together during wing shows, during 
uh, solo McCartney shows in the 90s. I mean, it, it's rather interesting. They did remain friends. It's just perhaps just the ego. I think Harrison didn't like his ego. And as yeah. George once said mm. many years ago, George said that Paul likes to live in his past. Right. And I see that, you know, like Lennon always said, every time Wings toured or McCartney toured, he brings the ghost of the Beatles back up. <laughs> but that's a valid point, that Jack's born sort of showmanship is similar to Paul's in that way. And I think that explains maybe why Jack gravitated toward McCartney as his favorite Beatle, as we know. You know, there is a sort of a, a kinship of attitudes there. And their songwriting, as we've talked in the past, is also similar. Jack and Paul both emphasize very heavily characters or they write from the points of view of characters mm. and in jack's case i think it is a little more self-reflective right yeah overtly covering his own self-reflections with mccartney sometimes it seems like laziness or just craft like pure craft it's he sets about it like a like an assignment at school or something mm. over the course of paul's career do you think that paul ever gets quite as reflective in his own material or do you think there are times when he has uh, yeah absolutely but, but to go back to jack uh, to draw that parallel with paul yeah i mean jack and i have to give him a lot of credit i i'm i'm not as big of a fan as you guys are but uh, for him to actually step back and go into another band with himself, you know, the Rack and Tours, uh, and some yeah. of these other bands that he he has, I think it's phenomenal and it's great, and it draws a parallel to McCartney with uh, Paul McCartney and Wings and just Wings. Right. And as far as uh, writing in third, not not even third person, but writing about other characters, uh, that's very pleasing to me, and I know with a lot of a lot of older people, they like to hear a story being told. Yeah. George had maybe one or two of those on the Brainwashed album or perhaps somewhere else, Soft-Hearted Hannah, but even that was written about him himself. But it's nice, or faster, uh, there's a good example, of writing a song about someone else. I think that's great. It shows you how good people are when you could actually hear a song and put yourself... Or visualize that in your mind of what you know what is happening. I'm not saying it's easier to write a song about yourself, but it almost seems like it would be. And I'm not a songwriter, so I'm sorry to all songwriters. That brings to mind a question of if you're writing any song, are you always writing about yourself? I would say yes. There's always some connection to you uh, in any art form really you're you're inserting yourself into it a little bit even fiction in writing you know you're going based off your past experiences and your viewpoints and things and you know you could be obviously writing through somebody else's eyes but you're always going through your own mind and right. so in a way there it's always self-reflective to a degree well, right. to give you an example of that carl um <laughs> biker like an icon Perfect. That's, that's an example of McCartney writing about somebody else, but yet he's writing about a biker who he likes to be. You know, he's rented many motorcycles and uh, oh. has enjoyed himself on a, on a bike. I mean, Red Rose Speedway album cover is a good example to show you on that. Isn't that how he broke his tooth? Um, wasn't, he, wasn't that a motorcycle accident? I believe so. By the way, just a quick aside on that. I just learned the other day that that was a result of, I want to say, his first acid trip. 
after being peer pressured about it for a year. I heard that on a podcast. I don't know if it's true or not, but I, after being peer pressured for a year to take acid and him saying, no, 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 I'm too nervous to do that. I'm too afraid of what it'll do to me. He finally does it and then busts his ass in a motorcycle accident. Uh, I don't think so because McCartney uh, broke that tooth before the video for Rain and Paperback Rider shot in uh, Cheswick Gardens in, outside in of London. Right. Yeah. He didn't take acid until 67. He was pressured, but um, I, I don't believe he did. I, I'm not Paul, so I really don't know, but I, I didn't hear that. Yeah. You did ask me a question regarding does McCartney write about himself, and besides Biker Like an Icon type of thing, to go back to what James was saying, yeah, I mean, you look at most of the songs on Flaming Pie. Um, yeah, you know, he's gotten more reflective in recent years, so, for sure. Yeah, oh, for sure, especially on like new. He's got yeah. you know a, a lot of songs about himself, and in the late the last decade, he's been writing something uh, about how much he misses his childhood. Yeah, and <laughs> almost every album, or you know, you look at an album like Press to Play, and that one's got. A song like Tough on a Tightrope, or um, It's Not True, actually. That's a better example. Yeah, yeah. And in that one, he's very directly replying to critics and things like that. And I think he was very... You know, whenever McCartney gets angry or inspired to an emotional state, I think that's sometimes his most interesting stuff. And Especially when he's angry just looking at you. <laughs> well, what, what's, the, what's the song that comes to mind for you with Jack that Jack wrote that is about himself... Uh, say being angry or directing it at critics or anything. Do you, do you have any that you know of offhand? Or? Oh yeah, there's tons of them. Hold on, he's got. I mean, as far as directing at critics at, or obnoxious people, there's a song called "It's My Fault for Being Famous," mm. where he he's singing about characters there, but they're all about basically being hassled. It's sort of a wish fulfillment of what he would actually do to those people who hassle him so there's that example um effect and cause effect and cause is a great one that's uh, yeah everything off of the get behind me satan album pretty much with the exception of blue orchid maybe yeah he's often inspired by anger but then there's also the the stuff like there's a song called the same boy you've always known which i think has a intense personal connection for him i don't know i mean it's like just one drink and then why walk a dog? <laughs> <laughs> just singing about what he sees. <laughs> well, thank you, Dad, for joining us today. Sure. It's been an interesting discussion. There'll be a quiz tomorrow. There'll be a quiz. We look forward to more coming up on yesterday and today. You alluded to a George interview earlier that is in the 1975 part of the special, and mm-hmm. I uh, just listened to that episode as well and very much I found a lot of George's insight there interesting. And so if any of you out there haven't checked out the Yesterday and Today podcast, please do that. Uh, It's very cool. And, um, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I guess we'll head back to the show here, James. All righty. Bye. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. James, we had a lot of fun this episode, and uh, we have some people we would like to thank this week for uh, contributing to the show via our Patreon page. We have uh, Elizabeth Myers. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. We have Brett Garski, the Brett 3 killed Mike Garski. We have uh, Yvette Wilkins, Wilkins on Sunshine. Brenda Englehart, 
Want to be the boy to warm your Engelhard? Kate McCoy, the bones of the operation. Stew Cat, or Stew Driver. Julia Hickling, the $3 hat Meg. We have Melinda Tay. Lord, send me an angel down. We have Joe shaking all over. Luke, me over closely. Luke Sinclair. And, of course, Tam Davis, our third person in spirit every week. And, James, we got a new one this week. I'm very excited about Ooh. it. We keep getting new people who are donating to our Patreon page, and it's making me very happy. We have Melinda Endress. Melinda, thank you so much. James, we'll have to come up with nicknames for Melinda and Elizabeth, but we really appreciate it. It means the world to us for you to, uh, for everyone who contributes to the show to contribute um, as we mention every episode, uh, podcasting is a stupidly expensive process, and you're, you're all helping to keep the lights on while we sit here in the dark and uh, look up weird research with websites called lesinrocks.com. So anyway, thank you, everybody, for doing that. It, uh, it does mean a lot to us. <laughs> yes, thank you, guys. And uh, if you'd like to uh, interact with us or talk with us or complain at us, you can do so. Uh, by going to Facebook, uh, which is our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thirdmen. You can tweet at us. It's at thirdmencast. You can tumble down with us. That's thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can press our words. That's at thethirdmen.wordpress.com. You can email us corrections or... Um, <laughs> or Steve Buscemi fan Questions. Art. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that deep fake? It's crazy. No. Um, you can email us corrections or questions or anything really you could just say hey that's a third men podcast at gmail.com you can find our show on Acast, which used to be pippa but is no longer because uh, mm-hmm. Acast bought them up and uh gobble they, them up a cast they a cast pippa aside mm-hmm. and now they are a cast above the rest that's yeah. Is the cast system good? No. No, it's not. <laughs> the A-cast system. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can find our show on A-cast now, and uh, we love them. A-cast uh, is not a we, system. We, He's a man. So it's like Lando was a man. They said the Lando system. You remember Star, you remember Star Wars, James? A-cast is Pippa. <laughs> Pippa is A-cast. A-cast is A-cast a man. is a man. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jim Carrey. Did some real damage with that vaccination stuff, Jimmy. Yeah, I think he backtracked on a lot of that, but... Yeah, I can't take it all the way back, though, can you, Jimmy? No. No, you can't take measles back. Uh, but Sonic's apparently very good. I saw it. I uh, I saw it alone on Valentine's Night. <laughs> um, you could search for our show on YouTube where occasionally I throw up a visualizer or video or... Uh, animation or something along those lines and you can do so by going to our youtube channel youtube.com slash c slash the third man podcast you can also rate review and subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice but a good example of that would be apple podcasts and uh if you review us and give us five stars uh it it shows our show to more people and so that's always great we like that so thanks guys feel free to send any questions like i said uh we'll do listener questions episodes so go do that and uh, we'd also like to thank sam kubert and tom valenti for the help with our theme song we're the third man as well as Susanna roundtree for the lovely intros and outros of our program and paul i think that's gonna do it i until next episode james i will be looking for a home talking you out of a short round accent <laughs> i will be looking for a home hmm 
inside of a refrigerator flying through the desert sky after a nuclear explosion. See you next time. <laughs> Goodbye. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Alf, what's he doing in oh, here? Oh, sorry, there was a, there was a willy in both of them. Alf. I'm gonna eat the. You get it? Are you just gonna stand over there eating monkey brains and other references? Come on, let's get over here. Did you know the okay. club's called Obi Wan's? All right. Yes. I decided to be kitschy and break out my old one of my old CD binders, and I put on a mix CD, and I was listening to it with the windows down. And the hook mm-hmm. brings you back came on. Mm-hmm. That's him, right? That's the blues traveler. Or were you talking about Hootie and the Blowfish? I was talking about Hootie and the Blowfish, the the rucker, bringing the ruckus. Never mind. Yes, James. Whatever you said, yes. Type a big at sign. We are. Okay, let's. I'm gonna relocate the baby and turn off the Taylor Swift. Just give me one second. I'm gonna Come just scoop on. up some of this. I'm gonna scoop up some of this sand and throw it in my hat. And uh, oh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna balance it uh, where the lost treasure was. And I grabbed it. All right. Well, let's take a look I at did that the treasure. Thing. Uh, I roll there? a wisdom check. They were little electronic Nazis, Tama Nazis. They were <laughs> tiny little things, very angry. Tama Nazis. Yes. They. <laughs> if you don't feed them often enough, they just poop everywhere. Well, that's why I threw mine in the trash. Um, Bathtub Stop Walk Killings came. What was that? What's the album? Which, which one? Help a stranger. Help a stranger. Uh, Bathtub stop killings. <laughs> About eight or nine months before. <clears throat> Say bye-bye. <laughs>
Love you too. Bye, yeah. Eleanor. Bye bye. Bye bye. Love you. I love you. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough. But if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right. That's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody. I'll see you on the show. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. She says, I love you now. It's adorable and the best. She said it to every bird in the um, bird exhibit at the aquarium. (laughs) Um, Good. They deserve love. Okay.